All right, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, thank you for coming out for number two of the history of philosophy in 16 questions. So the first question is, what the hell happened? Tonight's question is, what the hell is going on? So we started with sort of the history and the evolution of the human being and the capacity to think. Um, and now we want to move on to what we start to do with that capacity to think. And that's really one of those critical questions. Um, now we'll be going again through the series. There'll be 17 lectures. I thought there was 16, but it turns out there's 17. So I don't know what the 17th question is yet. We'll find out. It'll be something. 17th question is, what is the 17th question? Yes, thank you. Yes, exactly. It's a meta question. Uh, and um, if, you, if you miss one of the lectures, um, then it'll, I put them on YouTube. And so you can listen to them there. And if you subscribe on YouTube, you won't miss them. But hopefully everybody can come for most of them. It'll be a long, long summer, I think, is what's going to happen. Uh, I might die somewhere along the line. Uh, but tonight's question is, what the hell happened? And to comprehend this, um, again, you have to remember that philosophy is very new. Last, in the historical record, maybe 5,000 years, maybe 6,000 years of philosophy. But we have enough of a record to know of the intellectual transition that took place from almost every culture, basically everyone we can find, but you're not supposed to say everyone. So we'll say almost everyone, in case there's some obscure exception, of early cultures that we've been able to encounter um, are essentially animist. Now, animist is not a set of beliefs. It's sort of an outlook. It's the notion that the world is alive in the same way that we're alive, and that the spirit of life that animates us animates trees and rocks and stones and uh, the clouds and the rivers. And so the world is living the way we're living. And you can communicate to it. It can communicate to you. Um, and that's where meaning comes from. But it means that you, as an individual, are simply part of the world as it exists. It's sort of, I'm going to sound like Heidegger, which always makes me concerned, but there's sort of an isness. I am, the world is. There's an isness to everything in existence. And this comes, again, all the early anthropological studies or late anthropological studies of the world suggest this very strong outlook. And so the first thing I put there in the quotes, by the way, my glasses are broken, so I'll have to put them on very carefully here. Um, this is from an Apache mountain prayer. And this is, this is a very clear animist concept. And it says, mountain spirit, leader of the mountain spirits, your body is holy. By means of it, make him well again. Make his body like your own. Make him strong again. He wants to get up with all of his body. For that reason, he is performing this ceremony. Do that which he has asked of you. So again, here's the analogy. The mountain has a body. I have a body. The mountain and I are the same. I want my body to work well. The mountain wants to be well. The mountain is clearly big and powerful. So the mountain could probably help me get better. Is it, so it's the whole world is like me and I'm like the whole world. No division, no separation, sort of total immersion in the natural world. And everything is by analogy and metaphor with the workings of the natural order of existence. Um, at some point, some people think this might be a mistake uh, in cultural history, but at some point, apparently coinciding with agriculture and the congregation together in larger civilizations, or cities, for instance, um, we begin to become more abstract. And while animism is studied all over the world, this transition is also readily available to us. And the picture I have there 
uh, is from a, actually a Byzantine mosaic, but it is a picture of Hercules ki killing the lion. And all of the depictions and comments and descriptions of Hercules in the ancient world, whereas he always had a lion skin on, that's how you knew it was Hercules. And this is the notion that he has taken the power of the lion, and now he's greater than the power of the lion. Hercules is the killer of the natural world. Man, or a superman, Hercules, is now greater than what came before. Still very anthropomorphic, Hercules is just a really big, strong one of us, but now the power resides in the human. And there seems to be this transitional phase that lots of cultures go through where they, take, they, they begin to separate themselves and try to take the power out of nature and acquire it for themselves. This seems to just be uh, an evolutionary step in, in, in the way people approach religion in the natural world. Um, and then you get this movement to sort of abstract religion per se, where the world is dominated by supernatural beings with whom we can communicate and interact on some level, but over whom we have very little control, if any, who are of a scale so much greater than we are that it bears almost no comparison, um, and, and increasingly powerful, increasingly abstract, until you get you know, totally unified gods of monotheism. So it sort of seems to be a, a, a pretty clear evolutionary order in thinking. Um, and the first real challenge to this comes from the Greek materialists. And so that's where we want to start. Because the question is, as I mentioned in the first lecture, theology starts with an answer. The gods, or God, or the goddess, or whatever, and then proceeds to the question. Whatever the question is, you already know the answer. What causes the tides? Poseidon gets angry. Why does the moon move through the heavens? It's chasing its lover. Some of these are beautiful metaphorical stories, and they resonate with us mythologically, but they start with the answer, the gods. And then, at a particular place, at a particular time, we'll talk about why this probably is, um, the Greeks, not only the Greeks, but other people besides, but the Greeks raise the question of what is going on? I will not allow the gods to be the answer. This is a titanic step in trying to think about the world. And I think we underestimate the critical importance of this because it's involved with all these complex notions, um, some of which are preposterous, by the way. First thing you have to say is the world must have some order, and that order must be subject to or, or obtainable by human reason. Now, there's no necessary reason that's true. And particularly in the ancient world, where you know plagues and famines and chaos and weather, you don't know earthquakes, you have no idea what's going on. And yet to stand there and say, no, I think the world is sufficiently orderly that the faculties of human reason can deduce what's going on. And this is so crazy that it really makes religion look sensible, right? Because you're like, why, why would the world be that way? What, what could possibly be the cause of that? But this is, the, this, is, this is the Greek materialist. Now, one thing that people get wrong about this is they talk about Thales or Democritus or the atomists, if you've heard of the atomists, and they say, oh, they sort of predicted the atom. 
This is nonsense. They did not predict the atom. The people who discovered the atom took the word atom and said, that's kind of cool. We'll use it for what we've discovered. That's like saying the Apollo moon mission was originally designed by the priests of Apollo <laughs> because they named it Apollo. See, there's no connection. For one thing, they thought atom, it just means indivisible. And it turns out the atom is very divisible, uh, as we discovered with mushroom clouds. You can divide the atom, um, and you can divide some other stuff too, it's very cool. But so the atom, not that divisible, indivisible. Um, so people go, oh, well, they kind of had a hint, they had a clue, Thales thought everything was, okay, I get this confused. I think Thales was water, no, Thales was air, Anaximagoras was water, a Democritus was matter, somebody else was fire. They all thought there was one element from which everything else was derived. Um, which is, of course, incorrect. We, we now have a table of elements, if you want to call it that, uh, that, that are very long and complicated and has many, many parts. But, the, but that's not what matters. The fact that they got the fundamental physics wrong 2,400 years ago is not that surprising. What's surprising is that fundamental breakthrough to look at the world and go, no, it's not animated by spirits. It's not driven by the gods. It's not controlled by some inanimate order. Rather, it is reasonable, orderly, and subject to human analysis. And again, now we're used to this concept. But think you're on the island of Samos 2,400 years ago, and you go, yeah, no, I think we're going to go with reason, and we're going to be able to work this out. That's a, a shockingly, uh, it, it's just incredible, almost unbelievable leap of, of human hubris, if you will. Um, and that part of what this requires is to break that animist tradition. Because to do this sort of analysis, which we still struggle with, you have to say, I'm not part of nature. I'm sufficiently far outside of nature that I can stand back and reflect upon it from some semi-objective, reasonable position. And people always say, well, this is the problem, right? Because what is nature? Does, does man make things? Are those natural? This, so we're still stuck in this problem of are we part of nature or are we not? But to make the breakthrough for at least a moment, you have to stand back and say, no, I can get a little distance. I can get a little scope from nature. I'm not controlled by it. I'm not immersed in it. My mind, at least, can stand outside and I can study and reflect upon it. And that leap of intuition or hubris or madness, call it what you will, that question of what the hell is going on and I won't let you tell me it's spirits or gods or powers beyond human uh, knowledge, but in fact, the answer must be something that I can understand and I can work out, is the spectacular leap. The, you know, just incredible intuition. By the way, we're still fighting about this, as you'll see. This is still an open debate. This is not a settled argument, but it got started there. Um, and, and generally, the historians think the reason it got started there is because the Greeks were in between the Egyptians and the Persians. And, and the Greeks had their theories of, of religion, and the Persians had their religious system and governing systems, and we'll see all about this, and the Egyptians had their system, and they were all in total disagreement. And at some point, when you're continually exposed to people of different opinions, uh, you either hate them and try to attack them, you ignore them, or some people go, you know, maybe we're just not right. <laughs> maybe, maybe we should rethink how we approach this, because they think 
It's, uh, you know, Mithras, who's doing stalactite, that'd be a little later, but they have Mithras, and then, or Ra, or Thoth, or, you know, and we have Zeus, um, or, you know, and at some point they go, well, maybe, maybe something else. Maybe this whole panoply of gods is not quite on track. And those people, again, Thales, Democritus, they begin, this is the beginning, right? They aren't done with this project, but they begin to try and think this out. And the reason, as, as the next, this is the long quote here, by the way. Um, the reason they start thinking this out uh, is most clearly stated by Epicurus. Uh, and we have uh, the great poem from Lucretius, De Rerum Natura, which lays out the Epicurean philosophy. Um, and if you look on the back of the chart there, what you'll see is uh, uh, two selections from that poem. The poem is quite long. It's a shortish book. But this lays out the problem, and I'll try and do this with one eye here. Here we go. Yeah. And there shall come a time when even though forced by the soothsayer's terror's tales shalt seek to break from us. Ah, many dream even now can they concoct to root thy plans of life and trouble all thy fortunes with base fears. I own with reason. For if men but knew some fixed end to ills, they would be strong by some device unconquered to withstand religion and the menacing of seers. So this is the problem. By the way, uh, Epicurus consistently claimed that he was not an atheist. He believed in the gods. He just thought they were very far away. But he said the soothsayers and, and, the, and, the, and the Pharisees are all trying to scare us. They make us, they ruin our lives with terror. And so he's this terror then, this darkness of the mind, not sunrise with its flaring spokes of light, nor glittering arrows of morning can disperse, but only nature's aspect and her law, which teaching us hath this exordium. Nothing from nothing ever yet, yet was born. Fear holds dominions over mortality only because seeing in the land and sky so much the cause whereof they wise they know, men think divinities are working there. Meantime, when once we know from nothings till nothing can create, we shall divine more clearly what we seek of these elements from which all things created are and how accomplished by no tool of the gods. So the argument that the early atomists make, or uh, early materialists make, and particularly Epicurus, is the fear you feel, fear, feel that confuses you and misleads you comes from this sense of terror that has been brought and bred into you by your culture's superstitions. And the way to overcome superstition is to study nature and know it. Nothing comes from nothing. Nature is immortal and infinite, he thought, and it generates an order that you can study. And if you study it and you know it, your fear and your confusion will be dispersed. And then you will free your mind to understand and think clearly about your condition, the world, and what's going on within it. Again, this is a remarkably radical concept. By the way, which Epicurus does not fill with a doctrine. His doctrine is free your mind and then work it out for yourself. And he has ideas of what he thinks you should pursue, but he basically says if you free your mind of superstition and fear and confusion, you'll be okay. You'll work it out from there. And he thought the first step in doing this 
was to be able to understand the laws of nature so that you saw hurricanes weren't brought by God to smite you for doing something wrong. He says, as long as you think that, you're never going to understand hurricanes or your own actions or the nature of the world at all. You'll be infinitely confused and you'll be filled with terror that some God needs appeasing or that something that happens to your neighbor is caused by, right? So this whole system that you think, oh, this is all caused by supernatural beings intervening either with me or against me. Um, And again, totally radical. One, by the way, illegal. Socrates was put to death for blaspheming the gods. This is pretty people are convinced that this is why Epicurus kept saying he believed in the gods. And then everything he wrote made it sound like he did not believe in the gods. But he always said, no, I believe in the gods, but, and then he write, right? And then, so that way you don't get put to death. Uh, so that is key, right? So this is not, he, he's not writing against some abstract problem. He's writing against a concrete threat to people's lives. You, you know, blasphemy, but going against the gods of your state you could be killed, by the way, which is problematic when you go from Greece to Persia. Now they have a different god with different rules who's gonna kill you for different reasons, and then you go from Persia to Egypt, say if you're a trader, you know, you're sailing around the Mediterranean delivering goods, and everywhere you show up, you've just gotta be careful. By the way, this is also why nobody trusts merchants in the ancient world, because they're like, how do they go from god to god to god without ever getting killed, right? We know there's differences, and they seem to pull, it's very suspicious. Right, that you're able to adapt this way. It suggests a certain lack of profound faith in your gods, right? Uh, so, that, so this was a problem that they're arguing against. Now, it, there's been a lot of work on Epicurus lately, talking about how he's the uh, father of science and how you know, he, he got the swerve, that this notion of swerve is quantum mechanics. This, this, okay, great, whatever, but it misses the, really, the profound thing about Epicurus and the materialists generally. It's not about the science, it's the purpose of the science. The purpose of thinking and reasoning and studying yourself and nature is to free your mind from fear. That's it. It's not about even being right. I mean, it's nice to be right. He wasn't, but it's nice to be right about nature. But it's more important is to say, if you get the notion in your mind that this is knowable, reasonable, studyable, then you go, oh, it's conceivable by the human. I can interact with it. I can make it mine. I can engage in the world without undue fear of random interference from, you know, the gods for no reason I can figure out. And so it's, it's a clarity mission to free your mind. Um, and then the last quote there, which I'll just let you read, uh, one, because my glasses are broken, and two, because it's, it's an obscure study by Euclid which seems an odd place to go, but if anybody's ever studied geometry, the great book of geometry is Euclid's Elements. And it was the standard textbook for about 2,000 plus years. And so it has the record for the longest running successfully used textbook. Because until very recently, when we decided that for some reason that doesn't work anymore, that's what you studied when you took geometry. Now it's great, Euclid, Everybody knows this, right? If you know the right angles of a triangle, if you have 90 degrees and 45 and 45, right? We learned all this geometry. Um, what people tend to forget to tell you is what this means. And the extraordinary, if, if you've ever read Euclid, he just starts first theorem, second theorem. Here's the definitions. He doesn't mention the gods, he doesn't mention anything. He just goes right at it. If you've ever read a lot of ancient world texts, they generally start one of two ways, often both. 
I would like to thank the king. He's really great. I mean, great. Like, wow, is he stupendous. Man, I love the king so much you can't imagine. Thanks for either giving me money or not killing me or whatever it was, but man, the king is good. And or, I would like to thank the gods or gods or a particular goddess or a particular god for blessing this work and making it possible. I'd like to invoke them to bless my work. And this goes on often for pages. And so you learn when you do sort of ancient literature to flip a lot. Okay, skip that, skip that, skip that. Oh, look, content. Uh, Euclid does not do this, not in the least. Right in the middle, first thing, here's a definition. Here's what a line is. Here's what a, uh, a plane is. Here's what a triangle, right? And he just starts working through the postulates. And then once you give him the postulates, he starts doing all these incredibly abstract arguments. Okay, I can't resist. I'm going to read a little bit of this because it's so beautiful. It's like poetry. If two triangles have the two angles equal to the two angles respectively, and one side equal to one side, namely either the side adjoining the equal angles, or that subtending one of the equal angles, they will also have the remaining sides equal to the remaining sides and the remaining angle to the remaining angle. Let ABC, DEF be two triangles having two angles, ABC and BCA, equal to the two angles. Now this goes on for roughly, you know, 180 pages. <laughs> and again, if you learned geometry, you either loved it and thought this was the greatest subject of all time. There's a subset of people who think, oh my God, I've been waiting my whole life to do geometry because it's so beautiful and clear and you can reason through it and it's lovely. Or you're like, oh God, when can I get out of this class? What's the minimum amount I can study to pass this test so I never have to do geometry again? So the important thing, though, is notice, here's what Euclid has claimed, total revolution. This is the, the, this is the um, project of the materialist taken to its logical extreme. If you have a plane, and you have a triangle on that plane, if you, if you bend the plane, rules change. But if you have a flat plane, triangle on the plane, the internal angles of that triangle will be, we know the answer, what? 180. You'll have 180 degrees of internal angles. And God can't change that. And it's that way because I, Euclid, say so. There you go. It's an absolute claim that human reason as deployed by Euclid, actually Euclid was probably sort of a collector of this, an organizer, and people added later stuff, but we'll just say Euclid. Um, that Euclid and, and the early geometers just decided this. They said, no, we don't need the gods. In fact, here's a theorem that says any triangle anywhere in the universe will follow these rules, and God or gods can do nothing about this. Hercules can't change it, Zeus can't change it, Thor can't change it, Apollo, Athena, no one can change it. Yahweh, doesn't matter. And how do we know this? The power of the human mind to reason is essentially, in this case, superior to any power that the gods might have. Because the triangle will have 180 degrees, no matter what they might want. This is, like, mind-blowing. They never put it this way because no one wants to hear that. We haven't wanted to hear that for over 2,000 years. So that's why it's all just, they don't, they don't have that preamble that says, by the way, your gods don't matter. Math matters. And math trumps them. You can't change it. You can't, you can't make pi 3.1. Try as you might, your mighty god. All-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful, now it loses to pi. 
And we can demonstrate why that is necessarily so. And so this sets up a battle that has now been running for 2,400 years. Do we follow the product of human reason and try and deduce our understanding of the world that way? Or do we try and deduce the mythopoetic, the religious, the spiritual conception of the world and try to derive our understanding and meaning that way? Or as generally, we have some hodgepodge mix. But essentially, they're pretty damn incompatible. And, and that's, that's the key to understanding. It's so incompatible that if you go forward uh, to Bernard of Clairvaux, a person who is very eminently dislikable in the Middle Ages, um, he, he, he was the founding of the Cistercian Order, and it was specifically founded so that people would stop thinking. The pursuit of knowledge misleads you. Specifically, he meant this pursuit of ancient knowledge, right? This was the problem. Christianity was in competition with the Greeks, people like Euclid. And he said, no, you've got to go out and farm because farming keeps you from thinking, makes you stupid, and that brings you closer to God. I'm paraphrasing Bernard of Clairvaux here, but he really felt that you should not pursue knowledge unless it had some specific religious purpose. Otherwise, you're going to go to hell. Damnation. And he was specifically arguing against the, the classical tradition, particularly the materialists because they're arguing exactly the opposite. The beauty of this is, after about 100 years, the Cistercian order became famous for all their innovations in agriculture and the great studies they had undertaken. And so they had to do a second reform to try to get them to stop learning again. Right, so this is this is like oh, there's too much traffic with the world. You're studying too many books. You're, you know, that that whole the notion is. So if you've ever heard of the Trappist monks, they make beer. Uh, the Trappist monks was the, a reform of the Cistercian order because they had become too worldly, book wise. They were doing translations. They were again great experimenters in agriculture and irrigation, beautiful architecture. They had sort of forgotten that they were supposed to be stupid, and they had started learning again. But that tension, uh, it remains. This is one of the key points. It does not go away. If we want an answer to something, we tend to sort of have to decide which part of the answer do we really want. Do we want to go with pure scientific abstract reason, although of course they weren't scientists as yet, but they lay the foundation for the kind of thinking. Or do again, do we want to appeal to like sort of the mythopoetic or the emotional? By the way, this does not make it wrong. Sometimes this is absolutely a great way. I mean, music, music makes no sense. It's beautiful and wonderful and powerful and moving, and every time someone tries to explain it, it just gets stupider and stupider. Right? Laurie Anderson once said, talking about writing about music is like dancing about architecture. <laughs> right? It's not it's not something to be reasoned about. It's unreasonable, by the way, to reason about things that aren't reasonable. You can follow that logic, right? And so this, is, this comes back around. Um, and so, that, so again, as you could feel in our current society that's debates over things like global warming or the best approach to all kinds of problems often run into our ethical or cultural ways of thinking and knowing that are completely counter to the science. And the science is often like, look, here's the solution or here's a reasonable approach to this, but it's so counter to 
our emotionally held beliefs and concepts of the world that we go, no, don't do that. And so sometimes when the scientists are given their way, they do very inhuman things. They come up with solutions that everybody hates because they don't have that sort of uh, sense of the world that we, that we really love and, and appeals to us. But this is the beginning of that debate. They asked what the hell happens, but they wouldn't let the gods answer. And so it's uh, incredibly troubling. And so what's happened in the intervening couple of centuries, millennia there, is what answers we want to give besides reason and evidence has changed and continuously changes. So as religion periodically goes down, we tend to then invest authority in the king. So money works and is circulated. It has a picture of the king or the ruler or the presidents or somebody. And that makes money functional. So we believe in it because it has an image of somebody important and powerful. See how bizarre that is? This is just, this is pure superstition, by the way. But it's, it's a functional superstition. It's, it's, a, it's a superstition that makes no sense, but we believe in it. And having a picture of a president or a king or somebody important on a piece of money makes us think, oh, that's good. I think they should just, I, I, you could run all kinds of experiments and just have crazy money, right? Like make money out of trash. I think people would be put off by that. Like, no, look, we want like a pyramid on it with an eye in it. That's cool. And people, so there's all these conspiracy theories about the pyramid with the eye and all this. No, it's perfectly reasonable. It appeals to our sense of the mysterious. And that makes us happy. So if you had a piece of paper that said, this money is fiat, it's based on nothing except for the international trading of money, which is a balance of abstract qualities of economies all over the world, as judged daily by the international finance and bond market. Use at your discretion. <laughs> See, that, that, that's, this is, it's true, but it's not really good, right? We want something that says, look, a president, a Ben Franklin, or, a, or a, whoever they are. We're not going to get Harriet Tubman for a while, apparently, but we'll get her soon enough. You know, that somebody valuable, important is backing our cash, and that makes it good. We're, we're, fear of, we're in fear of the abstraction. And so, you know, make a, a, a symbol or, or a myth out of it. Um, and so, again, this, this structure, this conflict goes, again, all the way back. Because while we've sort of moved on in theory from our animist tradition, from our early mythopoetic beginnings, in practice, blah, if you look around at what people do, um, think of all the symbols we're surrounded by every single day. And those symbols carry um, potency. So that people always, if in the marketing world, they always talk about brand recognition, brand loyalty, brand, that brand, why? Why are they so obsessed with brand? And it turns out they're obsessed with brand is because people love that concept. I don't believe in Mithras. I believe in Mercedes-Benz. That's a good thing. It's a new good thing. It's not necessarily based on evidence or experience. It's based on decades and hundreds of millions of billions of dollars of narratives and stories and myths and images that we've presented that say Mercedes-Benz or BMW or Porsche has value. Why? 
because we told you so. And other people bought it, and so there you go. So, it's, and again, it's, it's, if you go back in the ancient world, why do they put the statues of all the gods everywhere all the time? Because if you continually see a statue of some god, it sort of becomes convincing. And the first thing you do when you conquer someone's country or city or whatever is you knock their statues down and you prop your statues up. Or you change the statues. This is my favorite one. Often they didn't bother to knock them down, they just changed the name. And they would like carve, recarve them a little bit so it looked vaguely like a pharaoh. You know, it's a Greek god, the Egyptians won this section. And the, so they just recarved them slightly and put a name on it. Oh, that's pharaoh, whomever, right? And people are like, oh, okay, what the hell are you talking about? Right, but that, that is, it would do that historically. Or if you have an impressive building, the Hajj Sophia stands out. It's a great building, it's amazing, but you just repurpose it. It's a cathedral, no, it's a mosque. No, it's a cathedral, no, it's a mosque. No, it's actually a big tourist trap. So, you know, and Turkey right now has decided tourist trap. So they're totally redoing it for tourism. Not as a mosque, not as a cathedral, tourism, because they believe in tourism. Um, so that, you know, this, this notion of, oh, we love these images, we love these narratives. We, we haven't moved beyond them. But it also obscures a lot of things in the world. Uh, one of the great questions that's open, by the way, if you want to reflect on a philosophical question that no one has really been able to work out yet, um, and Euclid, by the way, is, is the example. Why does math work? Right? How is it that throughout history, thinkers sitting in cells, working in their labs, writing on paper and papyri and cuneiform tablets, have been able to speculate with equations and come up with solutions that, when tested later, often much later, have proven to be accurate? How, how is it that the human mind has come up with a system of reasoning and reflection that allows it to plumb these incredibly fundamental aspects of the universe based really on almost no knowledge or evidence? It's, it's the power, the unbelievable power of mathematics, and no one knows why this would be. There's lots of speculation about why, but there is actually no like, really clear answer so this is, it's an open question. And it's been open since Euclid did this. Because so far no one's found a, a triangle that violates it. No god has been able to overthrow it. And yet no one is precisely clear on why this might be the case. Because he, excuse, Euclid, uh, about 300 BC, BC, but again, he's clearly collecting material that has come down from history, right? That this, this, is, this is predates him. So he's, he's taking stuff from the Egyptians and from the Babylonians and from all over the place. So it's not uh, just his, but it's sort of collected in 300 BC. So a, that's a significant moment in history. So then what should we do with this? This is one of the things I want to do. What, what do we do with this knowledge? Um, I, I find it both comforting and entertaining and uh, that several thousand years later, we still have the same problems, right? We don't know how to respond to things like global warming very well yet because we have the evidence and we have the reasoning, but how do we then respond in a meaningful way? 
If somebody said we're threatened by gods, we would go, okay, we can sacrifice something, we can pray, we can burn an effigy, we can do all the great stuff we know how to do. But then how do you respond to something that's an abstraction? Notice it's an abstraction. It's not a concrete thing. It's not something you can put your hands on. This is the, the problem. It's very inhuman at some level. We struggle mightily with things that we can't grab. That's why the mythopoetic mind is constantly making things concrete. Hercules kills the lion. Hercules doesn't go out. They don't, the myth doesn't go in. Hercules, one of his labors was to go out and kill the conceptual framework that had allowed for animals to have supernatural power beyond that capacity granted to humans. And so he wanted to disrupt that thinking mean so that in the future we would more clearly reflect on the anthropomorphic nature of supreme gods. So no, no, that's boring. We don't want that. Like with chalkboard, I don't know we do out of the chalkboard, go door to door and explain the mythopoetic and the lions aren't really super, I don't know, yeah, no. He killed it, he took a club and he killed it and then he wore the skin everywhere. And we got the message, right, the lions are dead, Hercules is alive, humanity is ruling, here we go. Uh, that, so, you know, with this, but with global warming, who do we kill? If there was a lion we could kill, we would kill it. No problem. But it's really tricky to figure out, you know, what's the thing? Where's the concrete? Ah, it's so inhuman, but so human. So for those of you who sat in geometry and thought, what the hell is this? Why would anybody, what am I? Yes. What you're saying is, I'm a physical human being. I, I like to touch things. I like to feel things. I like to lift them and know how much they weigh. I don't even know what it means to say that every triangle in the universe must align with, what are you talking about? I'm mostly interested in lunch, right? You know, that, that sort of, it's that, trying to make that abstract leap. And yet we can make the abstract leap. If we couldn't do it, it would be so simple. Our lives would be much easier. If we were incapable of making the leap, we would be so much better off. We would be less confused. But we can make the leap, but only occasionally and imperfectly. Like I said, we're still learning this. We've only been doing this for 2,300 years, give or take. And so we're not very good at it yet. The animist tradition goes back at least 50,000 years and probably much, much longer. So we're, we're not abandoning that at any moment. We're, we're going to be keeping that alive. And some of the examples that you get of this is even when people, particularly you can see this in medieval architecture, and even architecture today, by the way, even when people know how to do geometry, they have the math, they have the capacity, they have the measuring tapes, they use a lot of rules of thumb, and they use their eye a lot, right? They measure, they mark, but then they use their eye. That's the final arbiter. And my favorite example of this is if you're putting a cabinet drawers in your house. If you center all the handles, because of the parallax of your eye, the handles look off. And so theoretically, this is geometrically correct, but human-wise, it's wrong. So to install them properly, you have to offset them slightly, which is to say, make them wrong so that they're right. But if you measure them, they're now wrong. But if you look at them, they look right. Which do you prefer? 
Which is the right answer? I don't know. I don't think they're, I mean, how do we decide? This is, the Temple of Delphi is famous. Everything in the Temple of Delphi is curved. The steps are curved, the, the arches are curved, and the arches, the, the columns are, everything is curved so that when you stand back and look at it, everything looks straight. So that is the real incredible genius of these guys, mostly guys, by the way. They, they had worked out that, yeah, we know how to make things flat, and they did. And then they immediately said, that looks wrong. We know how to do the architecture. We invented geometry. We've got it. So we're going to do it right, which is to put a slight curve in it so that it looks good, even though it's wrong. See how that is? That's the, that's the, essentially, this is our struggle. Even when things are geometrically perfect or reasonably tight, Euclidean accuracy, Epicurus, right through the numbers, our experience of them are off-putting and we don't like it. And then we make things that are wrong, and we go, oh, look, that looks good. That really, I really like that. By the way, the Greeks also did this with statue, as sculptures continually rediscover throughout history, is they worked for a long time to find perfect human proportions, which they then made into statues, and which they immediately decided did not look that good. And so the most famous Greek sculptures that have survived are all wrong. Yeah, they, 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 they made them proportionally, balance-wise, inhuman. That's sort of like, I guess it would be sort of like boob implants from 2,000 years ago, right? Like that, that the normal and the natural, when sculpted in marble, didn't look quite as great as they wanted it to. But when they made it unrealistic, somehow it looked more lifelike and more human and less dead than something that was carved to be perfectly human. It's, it, it's just weird, but they worked that out. Again, the period of time when they made it anatomically accurate is really short. It's like, a, you know, I think it's like 80 years or something. And they immediately abandoned that. They're like, well, that just doesn't look as good as if we make the butts a little bit bigger and the thighs are disproportionate and the height and then all this kind of crazy stuff. And then you look at it and you go, oh my God, that's stunning, it's so lifelike. But it's not, right? That's the, it's like, and it's wrong. And, and so this really, uh, you know, is a big part of the struggle. Sometimes the accurate, the true, the reasonable, the perfect, the platonically great is not that good. Sometimes the mythopoetic totally misleads us. And we end up in a ditch. That's not that good. And so we kind of mix and match, and that creates all kinds of problems as well. So it's not that you want to appeal to superstition per se, but it turns out that when it, one superstition really hard to get rid of, probably impossible, by the way. Given the finite nature of the human mind and the infinite variety of the world, we probably just have to have a bunch of stories that we tell ourselves to get through the day, to try and act consistently only when we have sufficient evidence to have reasonable expectations of the outcome is probably disabling. You, you, you need standard operations, you need social norms, you need narratives that allow you to function. Um, but you also need the capacity to go, hmm, how about this narrative? Is this really that great of a narrative? Does it work for me? But notice you can only do that occasionally. Right, because you're, you're inundated, we're swimming, 
in hundreds, if not thousands, of mythopoetic stories. It's Christmas time. It's hilarious. I don't know anybody who really believes in Christmas, and almost everybody I know still gives Christmas presents. Right? It's this beautiful, oh, I don't believe in Christmas, Merry Christmas. I'm like, uh, that's hilarious. It's like performance art. It's like a national performance art. So we say we don't necessarily believe in the content of Christmas, but we act exactly as if we do believe in the content of Christmas, which means we believe in the content of Christmas. It's just like in the ancient world, they always go, oh, did they really believe all this stuff? It's hard to know, but I'm sure a lot of people have thought, I don't know if sacrificing a bull to Zeus is really going to do anything. I don't know if Zeus exists. Are you sacrificing a bull? Absolutely. <laughs> so do they believe or do they not believe? I, I don't know. What, is, what do you mean by believe? Right? And so we swim, we live, we're inundated in this just panoply, myriad of stories, many good, many helpful, many uplifting, many not helpful, many confusing, many that darken our mind. And working that out, this is our real problem. And that is the fundamental issue that is raised by the materialists. Not the science part, oh, that's great. Not the math part, although you gotta love math. It's the notion of raising up and looking around and going, hey, wait a second. One, two, five, some of these stories I just don't believe and I don't want to replace it with another story just like that. I want to replace it with, and this is the part I want to leave you with because it's such a breakthrough. I want to replace it with the capacity of human reasoning. Again, this is just a leap. This is a titanic, an unimaginable leap. Because how many of us have ever reasoned ourselves into doing something that turns out to be totally stupid? <laughs> right? So even when we apply human reason, sometimes we apply it in ways that are not that great. Or it misleads us. And sometimes we do stuff that we think, oh, if I had just thought that out for one second, have you ever thought that? If, if, if I had just given one second of a reflection, I would have saved myself a lot of pain and suffering. But I didn't for some reason, because I'm human. And so I sort of wrecked myself, nice. I'm gonna think next time. So it turns out that not thinking is not very helpful. It also turns out that a lot of times thinking is not that helpful. Right? And so for the Greeks, at this point, to leap in there and go, you know what? We're just going to go with our capacity to reason and just call it good. It's better than all this God stuff. When you have no answers, right? What causes the tides? Well, the universe is all fire. Something, 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 tides. Well, you may as well say Poseidon, right? Because it, it really is an equally good argument. Or there's these little invisible things that you can't see that make up everything and they wiggle around and universe. Really? I think I'll go with the head of Zeus, Athena popping out. That just seems about as good. Right? But it's not subject to human reason and logic and the rules of reason and logic. And so that attempt to intervene in those narratives and said, look, at least once in a while, let's, let's try and think about this. Let's try and gather some evidence and pile it up and see what we can make of it with logic. And you see this results immediately. 
So Socrates and Plato, who we'll talk about more next time, they're, they're famous for invoking the gods and invoking mysteries, but they really want to follow the rules of reasoning. See, this is the interesting thing. It turns out that once you've sort of drunk from the cup of human reason, you're doomed. Because this is, this is why you start getting people to say, oh, you have to argue reasonably for the existence of the gods. This is why one of the supreme works of the 17th century, Immanuel Kant's critique of pure reason, was an argument back to this time period, where he says there is no reasonable argument for God. Critique of pure reason. There's, no matter how pure your reasoning, you will never get there. It can't be reasoned that way. And Euclid's like, yeah, I was trying to tell you that. <laughs> 2,300 years before. By the way, Kant believed in God. He was not trying to reason his way out of God. He's just saying you can't prove it with human reason. But notice we feel like we should. Whatever it is we want or believe, we think, oh, I need to come up with some reasons, however fallacious, however misguided, however shoddily constructed. I still need that reason. And so that little emphasis, that's why I mentioned Bernard of Clairvaux. Because what there, the, the, the counter argument is not, oh, a different set of reasoning. The argument is, no, you have to abandon human reason. They know that that is the danger. You must let go of it. You must give up. Human reason is not your friend. It's your enemy. It misleads you. And that really has been the two lines of argument, fundamentally, that were laid out when the materialists started asking, you know, what the hell is going on? So keep this in mind. It's, it's, it's the key breakthroughs, the movement from animism to people standing around going, no, we will not allow for spiritual, materialist, supernatural arguments. Is, that's the break. That's the, the, the insight. But it's not a conclusion. It's a beginning of a, of a long-running, multi-thousand-year debate about how do we know things? Where does knowledge come from? Uh, what, what counts? What can we rely on? Who's, who's a source that we should appeal to? What are the limits of human reason? How the hell does math work anyway? All of these series of questions. We didn't have them before. Maybe life was better before this, right? Just, but, but, but now we do. We can't escape it. We believe in reason. We probably have an unreasonable belief in reason, actually. The evidence is pretty strong that we're unreasonably attached to the power of reason. Uh, um, and so we try to deploy it everywhere, even when it doesn't make any sense. And, and that is both the gift and sort of the problem. And so, uh, in conclusion, here's, here's the thing. So again, 16 questions. So not long on answers. I'm going to keep telling you this. So I'm not giving you a lot of answers to these questions. I'm just making it more confusing, I hope. Um, you know, so, so to, to hopefully encourage reflection on this. And so, so ask yourself, as, as you think about this later, what are the sort of mythopoetic ideas that I keep alive in my mind? Do, are they good? Do they help me? Are they, are they valuable? Do they, re, do they reinforce my life? What are the ones that I've broken with? The narratives in my society? Um, that, that I've been trying to struggle out of. Again, I'll keep mentioning this because I think it's the most important thing going on in the world, is the transition from women as sort of subhuman, second-class, uh, inferior, feeble things to um, equally capable human beings. This is two totally different narratives. 
This is two completely different stories. And we're really struggling culturally, civilization, and worldwide to bring about that change. Now, the evidence has never changed. Like, all of the evidence is, yeah, women can do stuff. They can even learn to read. It's impressive, right? You know, it, but, but the narrative we tell about that is changing dramatically. So it used to be women don't go in STEM fields. By the way, this is not true statistically. The argument itself makes no sense. Women don't go into STEM fields because they don't like them and they can't do math. Now the argument is changing to what is wrong with STEM fields that women aren't in them. You see that that's a total reversal of the narrative that we've been telling ourselves. From something is wrong with women to something is wrong with our system. The hilarious thing is all the evidence is that women go into STEM fields at least as often as men, in fact, more often. And they get almost 50% of the math degrees, which is, generally speaking, the hardest degree you can get in college. And so even the narrative we tell about this is nothing to do with the facts. But it is a narrative that is changing, or at least we're attempting to change it. And so that one question I really want to ask you is, where is the myth of poetic stories you tell yourself? What are your favorite ones? What are the ones you've been trying to get rid of? What are the ones you, you hold to and you think make your life better? What are the ones that you think would be, you, you could just get rid of it? You think you've gotten rid of it, by the way, and all of a sudden it pops up in your mind again, right? Like, oh, shoot, there it is. I, I thought I had gotten rid of that, but it turns out I hadn't really gotten rid of it. So that's question number one. And then question number two is occasionally just stop and look at something that you're doing or saying or, or, or in some manner interacting with and go, is this reasonable? What, it, what is the reasoning here? What's the logic? What's the human order that I'm tr trying to impose or responding to? What, what is my thinking really at a deep level? Just do this randomly, by the way. Set a timer. And then if the timer goes off, whatever I'm doing, I have to say, well, what's going on? Why? Is this reasonable? What's my reasoning? What am I thinking here? And I think if you do that, you'll find out that most of the time, myself included, by the way, I'm accepted, we're on autopilot. We're living in, in a pattern that we've been established that we like, apparently, or maybe we dislike. But we aren't applying the reason. We aren't doing what the materialists have done. And I think you'll get some sense of the power of sort of the incredible breakthrough that they made if occasionally you step back in your own life and say, you know, what the hell am I doing? What's going on? And then you can get a sense of the power when materialists systematically, 24 years, 100 years ago, stepped back, looked at this entire culture, civilizations, three of them basically, primarily the Persians, the Egyptians, and their own civilization, and said, uh, no, I, what, no, I don't accept that. I want to really know what the hell is going on. Thank you very much.